Welcome to Single Serving Cinema with Tim and Tay, a podcast that looks at one critical scene in a movie every other week. We explore how the scene is constructed and what the scene achieves, and what it can tell us about the movie as a whole. While we won't needlessly spoil any aspects of the movies we talk about, we will go where the discussion leads us. So, it's always recommended that you watch the movie before you listen. I'm Tim. I'm Tay. And this week we're talking about Gattaca. Woo! Gattaca! Yeah, this was a suggestion of yours, Taylor. Yes. And uh, I was more than happy to dive back into this one. It'd been a little while. So just for those who don't know and are listening to this cold, in the not-too-distant future, advances in eugenics has led to a genetic caste system. Those with manufactured ideal genetics and those conceived naturally, possessing the expected hereditary pitfalls and risks. The film follows Vincent, who endeavors to overcome the limits of his naturally developed genes to become an astronaut. Starring Ethan Hawke, Jude Law, and Uma Thurman, Gattaca was directed and written by Andrew Nichol and was released October 24th, 1997. Yeah, two thumbs up for Andrew Nichol and two thumbs up for this tagline. There's no gene for the human spirit. I mean, does it get more 90s than that? That's uh, easily the worst part of this movie. <laughs> the tagline. Um, taglines, I know, are my assumption is that they're, that they're not always a product of the director or the screenwriter no or way. maybe even producers. It's uh, it's be just like trailers. It's often beyond their control. So we're not going to hold this one against Nickel because it's a it's a real stinker. So uh, Taylor, tell me tell me about the first time you saw this movie. What what your sort of personal history is with it? Okay, so I was late to come late to Gattaca, I guess, relatively speaking. I probably watched this about six seven years ago. I was in my earlier twenties, and uh, it was a recommendation from. A close friend of mine, a guy who I worked with on a couple of movies actually, and he, it's one of his, this is one of his favorite films, um, and we happened to be going to through a small town up north, stopped at this dollar store, and they had a huge collection of VHS DVDs, and uh, we found these Super Bits, which is somewhere between a DVD and the Blu-ray. <laughs> that was like this exclusive branding of Super Bits are really cool, like. Basically, every day that goes by, they become more of, like, a hidden historical aspect of, like, home release videos. Yeah, I, they, they're in that same category of, like, the HD DVDs. There's long... It's, like, a long-forgotten past. <laughs> but, yeah, so I, I picked up a few Superbits that day, including Gattaca, which is one of probably, like, 100 titles ever released on Superbit, which is pretty hilarious. And we You've watched got a pretty the, good Superbit collection going, right? Yeah, yeah. I I think I picked this one up with Lawrence of Arabia and A Night's Tale, but I, li- I had about six, seven, eight of <laughs> a Super Bits, which is pr- a pretty hilarious collection to have. But we, we watched it as a group, and everybody loved it. I think it was a couple people's first time seeing it as well, and it's it, it, you feel like you've been missing out on something when you first watch this. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's something, even just in my last rewatch for this episode that really came across was how much is there under the surface and how generally overlooked this is, even though critically it's very acclaimed. And it's become, if you talk to educators and and if you see stuff about the film, it's become a a pretty standard curriculum choice for both film studies and people in in the sciences, people considering sort of its subject matter. Yeah, I heard, sorry, some people have seen this in philosophy classes in high school. Uh, I've heard it, I've heard it taught in science classes as well i thought that was really interesting because i must have missed it being an art student and through most of that yeah well it's one of those grounded speculative fiction works that really allows for i think a really fruitful discussion of what it talks about because it's not 
while there are really strong themes in it, I don't think it's very heavy-handed in absolutely no. demonizing one specter or another. And that's definitely one of the stronger parts of this movie. It's, it mm-hmm. is not this bleak, dystopic outlook of the future. It is full of promise that's kind of just being missed almost. And it, it's mm-hmm. full of optimism in, in the right way, if you look at it in the right yeah. ways. Yeah, there's real nuance to the sort of shades of gray that it applies to a society that could very well be somewhere down the line. And I think that's why it does have staying powers within academic circles and within um, a certain type of sci-fi fan. For for context, I, I watched this back like around the beginning of university. Um, it was certainly a part of movie lists that were all about uh, sci-fi movies you maybe haven't seen, right? So after you've done your 2001 and all of that, you start looking in for other movies and it does exist in this little sort of subsection yeah, it pops up on realist, a lot of those lists. Yeah, like cerebral, low pro, uh, low production value, or not low production value, but low budget um, sci-fi movies. And I would have found it on a list probably with something like Primer, Moon, uh, Legete, things like that. And at the time, when you know I'm not nearly as a, as as a well-rounded um, sort of film lover as I am now, I almost certainly thought it was probably a little slow and a little boring when you're watching it back-to-back with movies that are more groundbreaking and more aggressive in their in their visual style and things like that. There's a lot of elegance to this movie that I think it's easy to overlook if you're just lining it up against the other 99 best sci-fi films ever made. Yeah, it, it, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I think that that's really... That's fair. It's totally fair. Because I think I kind of had the same reaction, even though I watched it later. But I knew that I was seeing something different. I knew that, uh, at like at least at that point, after seeing you know a lot of the mainstream science fictions, I knew that there was something that this movie was doing right that other science fiction films were not doing. And maybe it's just the combination of everything, but it is so much more of an emotional watch for me now seeing this movie than it was initially. Mm-hmm. Do you feel the same way now that you've come, come back to it again for this? Yeah, the either just being somewhat older or being more intentional about the way that I think about movies that I'm watching and things like that, this one, that perspective added so much more engagement for me and allowed me to see so much more value in every aspect of this movie. Because again, as you commonly get from a movie that's written and directed by the same person, you've got this clarity of direction from its production to the way that the actors are acting, to the way that they're saying the lines, to the way that themes are overt throughout its entire arc yeah it's i think it was like those themes and the script that really stood out to me more on these watches i think uh, of course i appreciated the technical aspects of this movie the first time i saw it very like i I was in filmmaker mode watching these movies you know Mm -hmm. the production design even the acting very much stand out watching it now i just see all these threads that are thematically connected throughout the movie and that's kind of what we're here to talk about today so i'll save a lot of that discussion for what we have coming up well yeah by all means if you want to hop in you're going to tell us about the scenes that we're looking at today we have already broken our rule and uh, we picked two scenes to talk about but i think we got good justification for that right yeah today we're going to do two scenes but they are connected uh, thematically and visually they are the two fairly infamous scenes from the movie that both vincent and his brother swim and compete against each other in a game of chicken. So we're going to break down both these scenes. The scenes start at 1641 into the film, 
and that this scene stars Chad Christ as a young Vincent and William Lee Scott as a young Anton. This is when they're both obviously younger, maybe 15, 16 years old. Brothers Vincent and Anton challenge each other to a game of chicken to see who can swim the farthest from shore before turning back. The genetically superior Anton handily wins each time they swim. One day, a determined Vincent recklessly swims beyond his limit, but surprisingly, it is Anton who needs rescuing. In spite of his prophesied heart deficiency, Vincent is miraculously able to swim them both back to shore safely. The scene ends at 18.20 into the movie, so this is about a minute 40 long scene. The second scene that we're going to break down today starts at an hour and a half and then 47 seconds into the film. So many years later, long after Vincent's heart is supposed to have stopped, the brothers reunite. Still unaware of how Vincent could have swam that distance and back, Anton agrees to a rematch. Stripping down, the brothers swim out far into the misty night. After refusing to turn back once, Anton confronts Vincent who tells him that it's too late to turn back because they are closer to the other side now. Vincent reveals that, this is how I did it, I never saved anything for the swim back. Despite hearing this, Anton tries to turn back and once again Vincent must save him and drag him back to the closer shore. The scene ends at 1.34.07, so this is about a 3 minute 15 second long scene. Yeah, these are these are extremely pivotal scenes, and at least in what we're talking about here today, they're interesting too because they don't, on their own, represent visually what's going on in the rest of the movie, and right, they're really also distinct. just focusing on two characters out of out of a larger cast or great supporting cast that we'll talk about later, and a couple other lead characters that don't show up in it either. Yeah, unfortunately, we are omitting some of the finer aspects of this movie, some of the more prestigious aspects, like the ensemble cast like the visual aesthetics. We are going to talk about some of that, but these scenes really are enclosed and only focus on a handful of actors. Mm -hmm. And that's just the cost of doing business the way that we do things here on Single (laughs) Serving Cinema. We just got to get used to not being able to necessarily get to have our cake and eat all of it too, but we get by. Yeah, we'll do a couple of shadows later. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So the the first thing that I really want to talk about, the thing that stood out to me the most upon my rewatches and and really sort of trying to dig into what Nicol is writing about and directing here is the really dense imagery at play, uh, specifically around the ideas of conception and birth and mankind's space travel. Yeah, so Um, the two brothers swimming. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, to put it bluntly, we all participate in a race uh, before we were born. We're all winners of that race. Uh, but it is a race, and you are you're you're a swimmer in that context. So it's actually obviously a very intentional choice that Nickel would made to have these two brothers. If they're going to compete, right. they're going to show strength, and they're going to decide whose genetics are better. Anton, who's was was selected specifically because he doesn't have a heart defect, he's not nearsighted. All these reasons. Or Vincent, who was conceived naturally and just luck of the draw, was supposed to have a heart attack by the time he's 30 or so. Right, so Anton is considered an elite, and Vincent mm-hmm. is... Con- there's a number of names given to them, but the degenerates... Yeah, degenerates. Uh, the godchildren. Or godbirths, stuff like that. Godbirths, yeah. yes, yeah. yeah. And it's also... In- that's a good point, because they could have chosen any game of chicken. You know, I never heard of a game of chicken where you're swimming out to a far point to see who swims mm. back first. I've heard of it, you know, like who can stand in front of running traffic the longest before moving kind of stuff like that. But this isn't your typical game of chicken. Yeah, there, there are so many ways that I think if you have two sort of male personalities come up against one another, they could have picked 
They could have picked a, a game or a sport or a foot race or, yeah, something more in terms of your grit, like like chicken in an actual car. Or there's a thing that they did in The Outsiders where they'd stand in front of each other with lit cigarettes in their mouth and you'd have to put your fingertip on the other guy's lit cigarette and then it was whoever, whoever backed away first because they couldn't handle the burn on their finger. I think it's very telling that Nickel picked this this specific activity for these brothers to compete in because it ties directly back into the nature of their existence, right? One of them specifically had all their weaknesses uh, factored out and one of them was luck of the draw. And these are all the things that are at play in conception itself. You've got a couple thousand swimmers all trying to be the winner and only one of them can. Um, right, and, and it should be noted, like the parents made this decision after the first natural birth of Vincent who came out a healthy baby, relatively speaking, but was given this horrible diagnosis that he was probably going to only live till age 30. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing. In in the world of Gattaca, this kind of race has been rigged already, and all sort of unknowns have been factored out. And that's why, you know, as, as Taylor mentioned earlier on, they, they make it clear that they had done these chicken races before, and every single time Anton won handily because he was supposed to because he's physically stronger and he's physically better it's just this time and this this transitions from a from a scene earlier the the first one of the two scenes we're talking about transitions from a scene where ethan hawk in voiceover is explaining that you know your your ticket's already kind of punched if you're a god birther you're a degenerate yeah he's already not gonna get yeah yeah, go ahead sorry he's already given all this context that he is kind of the hopeless one of the two brothers Mm -hmm. And yet somehow miraculously he wins this race. And we don't know why or how. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and I mean, the, these all tie into this idea of destiny too. And if you're going to look scientifically at destiny, there's no better argument than your genes. Because even right now in our current setting, you can look at your heart history and have a pretty clear idea of whether or not you're going to have a heart attack by the time you're 50 or not. Uh, and Vincent in this movie is the argument against uh, the whole society sort of subscription to the idea that we know exactly how good how strong everyone is we know exactly how and within a certain degree of error when they're gonna die but there's no gene for the human spirit tim yeah yeah (laughs) yeah i mean the tag the tagline isn't wrong it's just it's it's just a little bit too stark i'd say (laughs) um uh, and, and, I mean, that that's an ongoing theme in a lot of Nichols' work. Uh, he also wrote The Truman Show. Yeah, fantastic and movie as well. To do. Yeah, so this idea of the triumph of the human spirit, the human spirit overcoming uh, physical limitations, uh, both in terms of your body and in terms of your world and your setting. Because, as I'll talk about later, there's a lot in this movie about space, even though it's a movie that's not about space. Because I think, I think Nichols is really honed in on the idea that space exploration is kind of the zenith of, of human determination. But uh, I can loop back around to that later. We should talk about the production, unless you, you had anything you want to talk about on this topic. Uh, no, I can jump into production. Yeah, yeah. So, so the movie was shot at a really modest budget of $36 million in 1997. So for inflation, you're obviously talking a little bit higher than that. But this is a kind of movie bracket that doesn't really get made anymore by major studios. They don't really care to bank on these cheaper mid-budget movies with the risk of not cashing out on an unproven quality or on an unproven product. Yeah, this is, this is like, I think today the the sort of analog would probably be A24, 
right? Like A24 does have a cap that's much lower than 36 million though. Oh, is it 10? I think it's 20. A24 is 20. Okay. They might have they might so, have changed their policies around. But I th- yeah, I, you're I right. think I think if if something like this was going to get made today, you'd probably see it like on Netflix or something like that. They take this a good script that isn't big enough for a studio or right now currently, you know, isn't a part of a franchise or doesn't have a specific sellable star attached and you can shop it around to your streaming services. Amazon Prime will make a Gattaca and, you know, they'll, they'll put it out and not a lot of people will see it. I guess you, you would think that it has star power looking at this cast of Ethan Hawke and Jude Law and Uma Thurman, but all were relatively unknowns at the time. Ethan Hawke mm-hmm. was a pretty fresh face in Hollywood. He was fairly successful uh, up to this point, but still not someone who had sold a movie on their own yet. And this was Jude Law's first film, I believe, first film in America. I think I think he may have done like a UK-based film, but far and away he was a stage actor. Yeah, so he was not a bankable commodity yet either. So I guess mm-hmm. it really didn't have the star power that we might think, even though the three faces are kind of plastered on the cover of the movie, like they're the, they are the sell point. Anyway, so so the budget... They're just working with $36 million. They're making it count as much as they can. And yet they, Did it pay off at the box office? No, of course not. Movies like no, this no, it uh, didn't. sometimes worked and sometimes didn't. That's why they are not really made in this budget range anymore. But this movie only made 12.5 back at the box office, so it didn't even make a third of its budget. Or just made a third of its budget back, I should say. So in spite its failures at the box office, this movie has so many scenes that are efficiently shot, and including these water tank sequences... We couldn't find too much information specifically on how they were shot, but we do know that there was on-location shooting and there was shooting at an Olympic-sized swimming pool to make these scenes work. Yeah, yeah. the first scene, uh, just based off of the scope, like as you watch it at home, you'll see like there's a lot of shots that include the shoreline and the horizon with waves going over and all this kind of stuff where like would not be necessarily easy to green screen or fake on a stage. For the, for the young yeah, yeah. Anton, young Vincent sequence. Yeah, and that scene is also shot in like this glorious orange palette, so everything's kind of sun-soaked, mm-hmm. and it looks very nostalgic. The latter sequence is shot in a much darker, mistier setting, and I think it was almost exclusively shot in this Olympic-sized pool. Uh, we found a funny tidbit, though. They initially were told that a forklift would be enough to kind of make waves in an Olympic-sized swimming pool for the sequence to work, but the forklift failed miserably. It did not work at all. So they actually had all the crew in the water, <laughs> yeah, in I the guess, pool, making the waves. Yeah, in a perfect world, I guess, uh, like on, on a movie with a larger budget, you can buy a wave machine, right? You kind of make your own wave pool for this kind of stuff. They didn't have the money for that by the time they got it to the scene. makes you wonder how much one of those budget in the first place. I can't imagine because, like, I guess they can rent a forklift and put it in the water or at the water, yeah. which also feels like that's you're you might end up having to pay for a forklift. Forklift doesn't work. They've got it like slapping the water. I don't know if they maybe they they put some pallets down across its forks. Yeah, I don't know. It's not working. So I don't know if you said it already, but how did they solve it? They they had the whole crew <laughs> jump in the water with paddle boards and stuff like that, and just made the waves themselves. Which is hilarious. I could see. I could totally see it happening. Yeah, I just can't believe that that was the end result. It, it looks amazing. Yeah, yeah, and that that's the thing. Like to get a movie like this that looks like this, that is a complete package like this, with that much money available. As 
we saw in some behind the scenes stuff from the Blu-ray, they talked about how when they had to use one space and make it seem like many different spaces, everyone was pitching in and moving around set dressing and things like that, which um, I think only adds to the enjoyment of a movie like this because, you know, it was difficult to get done and they made every dollar count. Exactly. And it just oozes that production value too. It, it flaunts it. It's right in your face. It's just very mm-hmm. intelligently it, shot, you know, to only show you one one futuristic apparatus instead of a whole world of them. Yeah. But yeah, again, uh, as we mentioned earlier, these scenes that we're talking about, they're pretty much just take place in water the whole time. You don't get a lot of the aesthetic around the costumes or, or the major settings like where Vincent works and things like that. But they are, it is really, it does follow the same principles as a lot of the efficient shooting throughout the movie. It makes great use of editing. It kind of made me think about it when you were talking about the... You know the race of the two sperm in that metaphor because there's all this like really mm-hmm. blurry surreal dreamlike photography in the scene as well a lot of the underwater mm-hmm. stuff is completely blurred never comes into focus uh it almost yeah. seems like you're, you're looking at it through closed eyes mm-hmm. and so one thing about how it was shot and i don't have a great answer for this but i think it's an interesting question at the very least is the first scene the flashback the brothers swim uh, right to left. Right. Uh, they they sort of, they orient the scene, you know, with your 180 setup that the horizon is to the left of the screen. The brothers start on the beach at the right and they reverse it for the other one. I don't have a great answer as to why you wouldn't want it to just match up and be, be, be an analog one for the other and you have, you know, Vincent overtaking Anton in both. Everything sort of lines up. Um, do you have any thoughts as to why you would switch the way that's filmed? I have no idea because I, I agree with you. I think they should be almost shot the same way if you're going to represent mm-hmm. that this is the... If you're trying to represent that this is the same kind of race, unless they're trying to suggest that something has changed in this dynamic and maybe it, maybe yeah. it is saying that from the beginning of this... like Maybe it's saying from the start of the second race, Vincent is already in charge. He's already taken over. Yeah... Because it is, it's mirrored both times yeah. too, right? The way that they set it up, you've got uh, Ethan Hawke's character, sorry, uh, Vincent, is closest to camera. Yes. And Anton's character, young and old actors, are further away. They strip down and then they, they get in the water and you have it running in opposite directions. Th- it's an interesting thing to consider. I don't because with, you can believe that this direction and the writing, it's so intentional that this was done for a purpose. Yeah. It's one of the, I just don't know what it it's is. It's one of the questions we don't have an answer for <laughs> on single serving. Well, we'll we'll check. You guys, you know, if you got an idea there at home when you're listening, please throw it up in a comment. Let us know the obvious sort of um, allegory that Nickel was putting here that we didn't pick up upon, in addition to the many others. Yeah, I think we now we got to talk about some of the dialogue in this final scene too, in the second of the two swimming scenes. There's there's almost no dialogue in the first one. Because it's almost just a cry for help, I believe. Anton cries for help, and Vincent saves him. And you got some voiceover too, right? But right. even that sort of even that trails off near the beginning, and they just kind of let the they let the action stand for itself, which is great. The two kids in that scene are fantastic. I thought the young Vincent character was very well cast. Uh, that is uh, Chad Christ. Mm. He's a he's a he's a a, a good look for for young Ethan Hawke. Mm-hmm. It was easy to buy. Yeah, definitely. But the second scene has some one of the better dialogue sequences I can remember in a movie, especially a brother-to-brother dramatic sequence like this. This is beautiful stuff. Yeah, I, I'd be hard-pressed to, to find a more iconic line 
that sort of it's it stands for this whole movie the I never saved anything for the swim back yeah and like it's up there with all these other sci-fi lines but again you know the the position that this movie holds in the sort of legacy of sci-fi movies is that you, it's not heard of enough but I feel like if you know someone else who's seen Gattaca you can quote that line and they'll know exactly what you're referring to it's such it like it drills right down to that sort of determination of the human will and uh and what, what they will or wouldn't sacrifice. It really cuts to the core of his character in that moment. Like, y- you understand so much in one line. So many things you were wondering about. So many questions are answered in just one line. And I think that's an example of perfect writing and shooting, to be honest. The mm-hmm. scene is beautiful. It's two, it's two men swimming yeah. in a pool and somehow all the mist around them. The fact that they're, like, struggling over these waves that are made by the crew mm-hmm. uh, are... It's, it's that dramatic. It's that level of emotional. Yeah, and that line, like, it has a lot of clarity. You know exactly what it means and what it refers to. There's another line in that scene that suggests something a lot more internal to Vincent's character. And it's where he says, uh, so Anton is arguing with him that, like, they have to turn back. They can't see the shore anymore. They're, they're losing their safety net. They're losing their confidence in being able to survive this. And Vincent says, we're closer to the other side, which in every available context of the movie makes no sense they're not swimming across a bay they're not swimming across a lake or a river as far as you know they're just swimming out into the ocean it looks like it and and it's something that they they also don't really touch upon like anton does respond back he says what do you mean other side like they kind of confirm for the for the audience that there isn't another side so there's something going on with vincent's character that he's believing in something that isn't there. And that's part of what's pushing him this far. It's number one, his, his total confidence in not needing anything to go back and his total confidence that there is, there's a goal, there's a destination. His perseverance to find something that most people don't believe even exists. Yeah. And that's the human will. That's like that, G, the whole tagline thread coming mm-hmm. out here again. It's, it's yeah, the yeah. fact that he has that human gene that really drives him or that, gives him that determination to succeed where someone who has more objective rational thinking will not succeed and that's the argument of genetics right there in a nutshell yeah i think it i think it ties directly into sort of the very spirit of scientific considerations that nickel is engaging in here in how it looks at the known and the unknown right so vincent works at a space agency he works i don't uh gattaca it's called gattaca right they don't call it nasa and obviously space agencies, any sort of form of exploration is about believing that there is going to be something there and, of value, and yeah, that there worth, will be something to know. It's worth noting like where they're going to explore here, too. They're going to an uncharted mm-hmm. planet, well, a charted planet, but not one we've been to before, Titan. Uh, which A moon, yeah, yeah. And as Vincent's character explains to Jerome, Jude Law's character, they don't even know fully what's... Below the atmosphere. Yeah, of yeah, no, it's a. Yeah, Titan's got this extra, incredibly dense atmosphere, and it's his life's goal. He is so intent on this. It's a lot of stuff that occurs outside of these scenes where he is so focused on just getting off the planet and going directly into the unknown, which is, I think, really important to the overall trajectory of this movie because it's so much about the dangers of living within what you know and believing that what you know is the sum total of what you could know, right? Yeah, so exactly. you're born, they tell you, 
they tell you you're going to have a heart attack by the time you're 30 or they tell you that your heart could live three lifetimes and either in whatever way you fail to meet those expectations or can exceed them is depend dependent on how much you buy into the fact that we know these things and that's all there is yeah in many ways the scene is just kind of a condensed metaphor for the rest of the movie in the argument of eugenics in the sense that this world has kind of created such a dichotomous way of looking at life. So the thing about the society is that it's traded uncertainty and potential for knowing exactly what they want to know. And that's part of this nuanced argument. And you can read, there's some great articles sort of exploring it from the scientific side and saying, lot, yeah. yeah, there there are all these benefits of eugenics because you can, if, if you were a parent and you could say, yeah, I don't want my kid to need glasses. I don't want my kid to have to worry about getting cancer. Of course you would do that, but it occupies that slim, grim, uh, gr- that slim gray shade where it becomes a problem because anyone born outside of this process suddenly has no value because they're too much of an unknown. Yeah, there's, that, there's a really great part in it where... I believe it is Anton who asks someone who works at Gattaca like about potential and can someone surpass their potential and the man says mm-hmm. no that would mean we misjudge their potential. So the way I'm looking at that is society is the definition of perfection and if something changes that definition then it's this it's society's fault for making that mistake. Mhm. Yeah, it's one of the scarier lines in it where you would can see into the idea of living in a society where Long before you're really conscious of who you are, the minute you're born, everyone thinks they know everything they need to know about yeah. you. Um, and and all this, I mean, all this ties into again, as I as I said earlier, this movie is so much about space exploration, while barely talking about space exploration. Yes, it's Vincent's at Gattaca, and he really wants to go to Titan. But that seems like, like that, the only but... explanation of Titan and Gattaca, really. Like what he's doing yeah. is when he's literally explaining to Jerome like what his dream is. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, again, it's it's the idea of the final frontier. You're going to a place where you're not, you cannot be sure of what's going on. And this is Vincent trying to leave the place where everyone's saying they're exactly sure about what the sum total of his life will be. And he keeps proving them wrong. Uh, there's also the, the space image. Oh, go ahead. There's also that great line in the movie about his desire to go to space. And he just kind of says, you know, they say that being in space is the closest thing to being back in the womb yeah because there's a weightlessness right yeah yeah which kind of ties this all back to your initial point about the, the, the birth and conception stuff definitely and and it ties into the swimming too because uh there there are a number of ways and 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 a number of like literary examples you could draw up where before people were using space as a setting for speculative fiction they were using the sea that's right because in in both cases we're not physically designed to live in those spaces. They are beyond our capabilities until we developed technology, boats, ships, uh, diving bells, um, uh, underwater breathing apparatuses. Once again, breaking past human limitation. Yeah, yeah we have to take, you have to take a little bit of your atmosphere with you to go underwater or to go into outer space. So again, there's a potential, I suppose, that if you had twice the budget on this movie, Nichols would have done more stuff about space or had the swimming be something more to do with that. But there's a real elegant simplicity to the idea that swimming is the competition. Right. 
Vincent's passion is space travel. And at the end of the second scene, what do we get? He looks up and the clouds clear out and you see the stars. It's him in this black water holding his brother to keep him from drowning and looking up at the stars because he knows he can he knows he can go. Yeah, it, the optimism once again coming back to that point of this scene and like the way that the arc builds between the two brothers, it's full of optimism because you know that mm-hmm. the genetically inferior Vincent has already overcome his potential like the life expectancy date. But now mm-hmm. he's also succeeding and overachieving in his like life goals. Uh, he's proven that to his brother now, which was probably, which was clearly important to him in, on some level. Mm-hmm. I just think this is yeah, a beautiful this... way to end that and make that connection back to space. I like that. That's a good yeah. point there. Yeah, it's a it's a really encouraging movie overall because there's a lot going on here far beyond Nickel just sort of saying like human spirit can push us past our limitations. Maybe is if you want to just reduce it down to its most simple. But I think it's also worth noting that he doesn't make a villain out of anybody in this movie. Yeah, there's no villains. The people who are yeah, the people who are antagonist to Vincent's goals are either doing their jobs or they're also a victim of their circumstances. So you have an, an amazing uh, support cast of older actors mm-hmm. who who make up uh, uh, police detectives and superiors and managers and things like that. And they're doing their jobs when they're telling Vincent what he can and can't do, things like that. Same with his brother is sort of occupying his role as, uh, you know, a, a genetically perfect person who has failed to fulfill his the potential he was told he was given. Yeah, like all these characters come off as just products of their environment, of this world that's been built for them and their mm-hmm. the, the expectations that were placed upon them. All the characters serve as like these different vignettes of this environment. And I think that you're right in saying that there is no official villain, although there are antagonists to our heroes' Mm -hmm. goals. Yeah, there is some necessary conflict because it is a movie after all. And there's there's a honestly the the source of the conflict is the thing where I feel like a couple months from now, it's what I'm gonna forget the most, is that there's a murder that occurs at Gattaca. But even the movie and it's doesn't so care forgettable. About even at the <laughs> yeah, end, you so never good. know who the murder is. They never even show you the mer- or give you the reason really or anything. It was it was just like we caught him. They kinda suggest at it, but yeah, it's not it's just not that important. They do need some conflict to kind of argue that, oh, maybe Vincent won't get to go to Titan. And it is tense. But it's so secondary. It is tense, though. When you're watching this, maybe for the first time, I feel that you are on the edge of your seat wondering how he's going to get through every single time some new challenge arises. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. But again, yeah, it's it's just a, an endlessly encouraging movie that suggests that, if anything, the villain will always be a society that's taken an idea too far, um, which is never one person. It's not the... It's not the president or the Galactic Council at the time of Gattaca. It's none of those things. It's that trying to do a good thing and creating healthier people that would live longer, you created a caste system. But it's, 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 an, it's an aspect of society. It's no one person's fault. Yes. And uh, I, think this, I think it's just very rare for sci-fi movies to be this optimistic and this varied in their in their considerations without ever pointing the finger at one person it's really why this movie's aged well i'd say Mm -hmm. it doesn't have some dated antagonist from some un-american country (laughs) yeah (laughs) that is some international threat or global intergalactic threat maybe yeah just to wrap up I, I mean, I don't, I don't know if we need to conclude again. We've come back to the main theme 
the human spirit stuff over and over. I think, I think people I get think it. I think they get it, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So we're going to move on to uh, a new section that we're going to close up these episodes with where we do some shout-outs to things that occur outside of the scenes that we're looking at that we still think bear mentioning uh, just just in short. Uh, so if you want to do your shout-out first, by all means. Yeah, so definitely wanted to shout-out this ensemble cast that we've already kind of touched on a little bit throughout this discussion. But it's one of my favorite ensembles of all time just because a lot of these actors actually aren't in a whole lot of stuff. Uh, mm-hmm. As you, as everyone knows from my first movie recommendation in week one, I always like to pump the Canadians. So uh, Elias Coteas is one... Thank you very much. He's just so he's so good. Yeah, he plays the father of Vincent and Anton, and he's not he doesn't get a whole lot of screen time, but he's perfect in this movie too. He's just he you can read so much emotion on this guy's face. I knew him from movies mm-hmm. like Exotica and Zodiac and Crash, a Cronenberg movie. Um, the the Crash is really good, and it's kind of the opposite of Gattaca. <laughs> it's not very optimistic, and it's not it's not it doesn't make you feel good. Uh, but Elias is. So laser cast, if I can, if I can coin that term, sure. to to his character. That's uh, that's not my recommendation, but uh, no, Crash he, is great. He's fantastic in everything. <laughs> I I love this guy. Yeah. Um, but then it's also like a really mm-hmm. sweet performance by Ernest Borgnine, who's like very old by this point in his career. Uh, it, Mermaid Man, <laughs> <laughs> and also the Carol Burnett show. He's great. And uh, basketball. Don't forget basketball. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but then like some really good TV personalities that I used to watch on TV like Tony mm-hmm. Shalhoub who was Monk on TV uh, Xander Berkeley. it's nice seeing yeah it's nice seeing Tony Shalhoub not playing a neurotic like he's oh, a real yeah. slick salesman in this he is and he's just a little it's really he's a cool. prick and I, I love his character yeah. and yeah. Xander Berkeley is someone I knew from I think 24 on TV he was just like one of those awesome characters from that show he was on Walking Dead too. Oh yeah, and always okay. just always doing a doing a great job, just sort of de- delivering some personality in like his thirty seconds of screen time yeah. at a, at a given time. He's great in this movie too. Um, and then I can't go without saying uh, Alan Arkin. And then Maya Rudolph is in a very small part in this movie, which is really interesting. I I didn't see that until you put it in a note. Yeah, she, she's she? just one of the nurses in the delivery area. Oh, okay. but she's point being oh, this okay. this. Uh, the low speaking cast in this movie is very very talented mm-hmm. um, Alan Arkin ov- yeah. obviously is a cinema legend and isn't I guess he kind of fits in with Ernest Borgnine as someone who's like why are you such a bit part in this movie but it's really nice to yeah. see and I love watching fantastic actors chew up small scenes like this so my shout out we've talked about it plenty already but it's the production aesthetic it's it, it's so much more than what happens in these swimming scenes. It's the 50s sort of aesthetic of the way they dress people in double-breasted suits, the way they slick their hair back and part it, uh, and the cars that they use to, which are older classic car models that, that they just give a more futuristic sound. Yeah, they just add the sound just like over if top. You're, it's, it's so yeah, cool. Eh? If you're getting like bang for your buck, then it's like, okay, let's pick an, a, a cheaper aesthetic We'll make it look like the 50s. The buildings are Frank Lloyd Wright buildings, so they all look weird and futuristic. And it almost makes it feel like a period movie, but you're looking forward into the not-too-distant future. Um, yeah. And all that sort of... I'll, I'll tie it up with one button. is just that like they when they send people to space, they send them in business suits. Uh, which <laughs> yeah, is, I like that too. It's just... It's so it's so ridiculous, and, and, it, and it harkens back to like older sci-fi short stories that I like by Isaac Asimov and Ray Bradbury where it was before they even realized that you would need a spacesuit 
Uh, same with like C.S. Lewis's sci-fi novels, where they basically they just like send like they send like a wooden box up up into space because they didn't know that there was a vacuum up yeah. there. Um, it really harkens back. I, to I that. love the idea. Yeah, it it fits in with that retro aesthetic. Yeah, and and they did say I, I read in some interview where they said that was a studio note. Was they're going? How can you send people to space in suits? Right. Yeah. Apparently, they sent them back the clip from two thousand one <laughs> where. All the businessmen are basically just like on a lounge, like lounging around in a space cruiser on their way to the moon, and uh, they didn't get any more notes on that. Yep. So I thought that was fun. Shut them down with some Kubrick. <laughs> I love, I yeah. love just hearing that they shut down a studio's ideas by doing that. That's pretty sassy. Mm-hmm. All right, and just to wrap things up, my recommendation from this week is another science fiction, another very small budget movie called The Vast of Night. Uh, it's from 2020. It's an Amazon Prime film. It's got that 50s aesthetic. Definitely got the 50s aesthetic. It's a not. It's a completely different type of science fiction film. It's an alien mm-hmm. movie with almost no footage of aliens, which is very refreshing to me. And really ingenious cinematography for a low-budget film. I loved the old retro film stock look of this movie. The dialogue is mm-hmm. witty and very well put together film. I highly yeah. recommend. Yeah, that that was a really fun, like, streaming-only watch. I'm pretty sure it's Amazon Prime. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then my recommendation this week, uh, because we were thinking about Ethan Hawke so much, I'm going to recommend First Reform. Nice. It came out in 2017. Stars Ethan Hawke. It was written and directed by the great Paul Schrader. Mm-hmm. And it's about a pastor, a priest at a church in upstate New York. The church is largely a tourist attraction, so he doesn't have a lot of actual congregation members. He doesn't do a lot of the traditional duties you'd expect, and he's kind of disaffected and and disengaged with what he does. And I'll just leave it at that. Ethan Hawke gives an unbelievably great performance in this. Uh, I, I think it was an Oscar contender. I'm not sure if it got anything. It may have gotten a screenplay Oscar. It might have, actually, for sure. But, uh, but I, I agree. Don't look up yeah. anything going into that one. It's worth every surprise that gets thrown at you to just watch it live for the first time. Don't see a trailer. Yeah. It's a, it's a great production. I haven't seen it since the first time I saw it, so I may just end up watching it tonight because I, uh, I want some more Hawk. <laughs> Handsome Hawk. <laughs> yeah, yeah, de- definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and yeah, so that's another episode in the can. We uh, just, as always, we want to remind you, there is uh, no gene for the human spirit. <laughs> and thank you very much for listening to the Single Serving Cinema Podcast. <laughs>